right? So if you're manufacturing a pen, a Sharpie, whatever it is, right? You know exactly what that thing's gonna look like when, when it's done. You know exactly how much uh, material needs to go into that. You know the cost of that material, and your job is to increase the efficiency of the production of that thing so you can make more of those faster at lower cost and drop up your profit margins. Digital systems, which power business and the economy today, are not physical widgets. They are continuous systems that need to be optimized continuously and they need to be learned from continuously because the behavior of the users of those systems changes rapidly. The way that we use technology changes on a weekly and a monthly basis. The way that we use Sharpies, generally speaking, is highly predictable and does not change. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Jeff Gothelf. Jeff works as a coach, speaker, author, and consultant to help organizations build better products and executives build the cultures that build better products. After his rock band prospects and ambitions faded away, Jeff's first job out of college was in the circus. That's right, clowns, the human cannonball, trapeze artists, the whole bit. Jeff worked as an audio engineer for the circus, but soon realized a life in the circus wasn't the life for him. After leaving the circus, he transitioned to working as a designer for some of the first companies to use the internet as a new communication, sales, and service channel. Having worked at early internet firms like America Online and IXL, he saw firsthand the potential this new way of communicating had to transform how we lived, worked, and transacted. However, much of the work he was doing was focused on getting software shipped to market with a little concern for how well these products and services met the needs of our customers and users. He knew there had to be a better way. So, Jeff decided to go out on his own and become an independent consultant to large organizations struggling with their digital transformation, increasing their agility, and integrating good product management and user experience practices into their ways of working. In this interview, we get into how Jeff has adjusted to the pandemic living in Barcelona, his time in the circus, the importance of quality product development and user experience in today's digital age, and his new book, Forever Employable. And so, without further ado, my interview with Jeff Gothelf. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. It's, uh, it's great to be here, Chase. So are you in Barcelona right now? I am. Okay. How long have you been living there for? Three years. And what prompted the move over there, just out of curiosity? We moved here because we wanted to and we could. That's the short story. Um, I had successfully uh, built a consulting business that was location agnostic, and we didn't need to be anywhere. So that's a really interesting dilemma to find yourself in, because if you're up for relocation, it's kind of like staring at a Google search box. You know, you're kind of like, you can type in anything. You can Mm -hmm. go anywhere. As long as it has internet and a decent airport, you know, we could go there. 
And so we ran experiments. We tried uh, a few different cities over the course of four years. We spent a month, a year in a different city over the course of four years experimenting. And uh, Barcelona was the winner. So here we are. Awesome. And so how's the, the COVID-19 situation over there? Like, what was it like when it got really bad in March? It's not good now. It's getting bad again. Um, March was weird. March, April, May was, was super weird. It was um, this kind of, this is a very lively place. It's an outdoor place. Um, the beach is right over there. Uh, it's, it's outdoor cafes are the lifestyle here. Um, outdoor gatherings are the lifestyle. And none of that was happening. Even the extras, the joggers and the bikers weren't allowed out. And so it was creepy quiet for a hundred days. Mm -hmm. And, and that was very, very strange and certainly not what we had signed up for when we moved here. Not what we'd experienced until that point. And when things opened back up, it was definitely like a breath of fresh air. And now, despite the numbers, or maybe as the cause of the numbers going up, things feel a lot like back to some kind of normal. We have to wear masks hundred percent of the time, but um, schools open, stores are open, businesses are open offices are open, you know, nightclubs are not open, that type of thing, which is, it's a bummer. And, uh, but outdoor cafes are open to a certain capacity. Um, good news is the weather here is pretty good. And so generally speaking, you can live that outdoor lifestyle pretty much year round. Okay. That's good. And what's it been like for you personally to adjust to life in this new normal? It's been a silver lining for me, honestly. My business required me to travel extensively. I sort of went to the work instead of the work coming to me. And so I've, I would spend 50% of my time traveling Europe and the US, occasionally to, to Asia, and Australia, New Zealand. And that kept me away from my family 50% of the time. The pandemic radically changed my lifestyle because I'm home now 100% of the time. I have slept in this house with the exception of a two week vacation every night for the last six months, which is unheard of in the last decade of my life. Um, right. And it's interesting because, you know, you get used to a certain lifestyle, your family gets used to a certain lifestyle and there's a little bit of risk coming home full time <laughs> for, for uh, kind of out of the blue, but it's been really great uh, on that front. So I, I'm actually very grateful for that part of the new normal. I don't travel. I do all my work remotely. Um, I've created a routine for my, I haven't had a routine in a decade. And so it's been pretty amazing to just be able to get up every day and kind of build this self-care routine before work starts and be there for my kids when they go to school and be there when they get home and uh, be a part of social life around here, which was a rare thing for me. If I was around and something was happening, cool, but if something was happening when I was around, I'd, I wasn't around, I'd miss it. And so for me, that's, that's the silver lining here, really. And the work that I've been doing has been really, uh, since everything is remote, it's not even a selling point anymore. It's not even, a, or, or a selling obstacle for the consulting work that I do. It's just sort of expected that the work is remote. And that's been really, really nice. Yeah. And uh, how old are your kids? Uh, 17 and 13. Okay. Okay, so maybe a little bit harder for them to become fluent in Spanish at this point. <laughs> They're going to become fluent. Uh, I mean, when we got here, 
when we got here, right, they were 14 and 10. Um, okay, they're doing yeah. great. And uh, they're not leaving Spain without fluency. <laughs> <laughs> right. And have you found any like increase in creativity or like newfound inspiration as a result of the pandemic? And the kind of this added think, time and stillness? Um, it's interesting. I think there was a period of panic there for a while where there was no time to think. It was just sort of react, 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 react. So how do you take the thing that you were just doing yesterday? And really, that was the speed of the transformation. I came home from my last in-person consulting gig on March 13th from Paris. And then the next day was lockdown. Literally, the next day, the borders were closed. Everything was closed. And it was lockdown. And so literally overnight, everything had to transform. And so I think it was a panicked reaction over the course of really through July, uh, well, through mid-July, at least for me. And so there was, there was really no time to, 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 for creativity. It's more like, okay, well, how did I, I used to do it this way. I'll just use Zoom and figure it out. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of sort of porting things into the, into the distributed remote realities that we're in. I think now, six months later, as this reality has settled in a bit and people have gotten comfortable with the tools, have pushed the tools to their limits, and have more or less gotten back to some sense of business as usual, more or less, right? I don't wanna, I don't wanna understate the severity of the, of the shifts that we've made. Now people are starting to really get creative with, okay, how do I run my business? How do I run my life? How do I get an education, right? And now the creativity, now we have to push it because the, the, tools, the tools that we had the tools that we had only gave us uh, the, the basic capacity to recreate what was already happening in the physical space. I think now the tools are evolving rather quickly to, to give us new, new ways of interacting with each other. And I think people are, are hacking those tools to do better and interesting things. Yeah, and what does that look like for you and your business? For me, it's about how to facilitate much of the training and the coaching and the consulting that I do remotely. And so up until very recently, it's been primarily Zoom and keynote slides and Mural and Google Docs and all of these shared collaboration workspaces. And now what we're trying to do is figure out how to push that further. How do you build uh, prototyping and testing using Zoom? How do you build better team level conversations when you're facilitating or coaching a team and there, and there are tools that are coming up, but I think more, more so than anything, it's about getting creative with building engagement and transferring energy. And that's really the, 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 I think the biggest challenge here is if you come see me give a speech or a keynote, or you could take a class from me, a physical class from me, you're going to get energy from me being in the front of the room and leading that particular engagement. It's difficult to translate that in a, uh, in a virtual world. And so you're seeing, honestly, all of us becoming at-home video producers, TV producers, right? With all these tools and lights and camera angles right. and things like that, that recreate the excitement that physical presence and body language would normally uh, take care of. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So shifting gears here. Um, Let's take this back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? I was born in Israel. 
And okay. we moved to the United States when I was seven. I lived for a year in Queens in New York City, and then uh, spent the rest of my years growing up in suburban New Jersey. Okay. Do you remember any of those years in Israel? I remember all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. How much of an impact did those years have in terms of kind of like how you, like I guess your life in general? Significant actually. So Hebrew is my first language. So English is my second language. Spanish is now my third language and it's coming and speaking Hebrew is, has been tremendously helpful in learning Spanish. I found there to be a lot of similarities between the two, especially when the English translation doesn't really work. There's a cultural understanding that I have that um, helps a lot. There's a lot of Israelis in tech. I work in tech. Right. That, helps a, that helps a lot as well. Uh, I have an affinity for the food. Uh, and there's, look, there's a part of me, despite spending the overwhelming majority of my life outside of Israel, there's a part of me where it always feels like home. You know, every time I fly there, every time I land, it feels like home. It's familiar. Uh, it's not a big place. And my family is distributed across the country. And so when I, whenever I was, even when I lived there and, and got coming back to see people basically cover the length of the country. And so I've been, I've been traveling those same roads and then into those same areas my entire life. And so there's familiarity there, there's understanding and reading the language. There's, uh, there's, there's a comfort there, you know, and it's, and it's nice to, it's nice to, to feel that. And I think I, uh, it surprises me that I feel that because I left when I was seven. Right. But, um, but it, yeah, it still has a big impact on my life. I speak Hebrew to my parents, you know, to my fam to my extended family, not to my brother and my sister so much, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's had a significant impact, um, on, on who I am today for sure. Yeah. And what did your parents do for work? My parents were in computers, <laughs> as they say. Um, growing up, I was the kid who played, like they brought home punch cards, like from those 1970s, like IBM computers. And so I played with punch cards. Um, you know, my, my folks at this point are retired, but, um, but my, dad, my dad was a, a systems analyst and a project manager and a business analyst for 45 years. Uh, my mother did that same, same kind of work for a while. And then she purchased a travel agency. And she was a travel agent until really the internet sort of began to initially slowly and then eventually very significantly eat away her business. And so she, uh, she did that until uh, she sold that business. And then that was kind of the end of her working career. Okay. And, you know, given your background in product development and user experience, you know, and design, did you like to like tinker with different toys and gadgets a lot or like design things as a kid? Not really, no. Uh, I always had a fear for computers, mm -hmm. and I always found myself attracted to computers. And I, uh, you know, and as soon as we, there was a, a home computer that was reasonable, and in my case, it was the Commodore sixty four. We immediately got one, and I started learning how to how to write programs in BASIC and and you know get the okay. the, the floppy drive and that type of thing. <laughs> and so computers were always the attraction. It wasn't so much the designing or the toys or the gadgets, um, but eventually the you know, the, the continued use and participation in the tech ecosystem led me to realize that there was an opportunity to make these things better. I see. Okay. And like, what were some of your biggest passions or interests growing up, like outside of computers? Like, were you into sports, music, art, et cetera? So I'm a musician. Um, my father plays piano. 
I grew up learning how to play piano. I've been playing piano my whole life. And so as soon as I could, I immediately joined bands, uh, trying to be a rock star. I played keyboards <laughs> and bands in high school. I played keyboard and bands in college. I toured with some bands after college. Um, spent a long time in bands and, and in, just for a few years, actually trying to make it in the music business with that. And so for me, that's always been my, my love is live music, performance, um, playing piano. These days I don't do it. Not, actually, now that I've got this routine, I've got more opportunity to start something uh, here. But generally speaking, these days I play for myself, for my kids, for my family. And uh, it's uh, still to this day, my, my biggest passion outside of, outside of work. Yeah. What made you decide to leave the rock star, I guess, <laughs> aspiration behind? I was tired of being broke. I mean, that's the truth. I, I, you know, I was interested in dating women and to go out on dates with women, you need money. (laughs) And I had none. (laughs) I was literally making almost nothing, like really just, just squeaking by. And, uh, and I was tired of being broke. And in the late nineties, when I I had essentially just met the woman who would become my wife, there was an opportunity to start working in the web. So .com 1.0 was happening. And back then, if you could spell HTML, you could get a job. I mean, it was, it was crazy times. And so I could do a little bit more than spell it. I could actually mark it up. And so I got, that's when I got the gig and, and it paid, I don't know, 30 grand, maybe 28 grand, 30, somewhere between 20 and 32 grand a year, which was like, 8,000% more than I was making at that point in my life. And so it was kind of a no brainer. Like the gigs, the gigs were winding down as far as like the, the, you know, they had kind of plateaued as far as attendance and the, the quality of the gigs themselves. And, you know, this, it's one of those things where you could keep doing it forever. Right. There's, right. there's no real reason to stop. But for me, I was just tired of being broke and it was a real opportunity to, to get back into computers full time in the computer work, which was my passion. So, Right. In. Yeah. Yeah. And for college, you end up going to James Madison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it was the, uh, it was the only school that accepted me from the ones that I applied to. And I swore I wouldn't go and I was furious, but I went anyway. And it was the best four years of my life. Um, I, I just, I just overshot my goals. My parents, like, like any parents think their kid is the smartest kid in the world. And they're like, you should apply to, you know, Yale and Rice and all of these Ivy League schools. And I, I was a smart kid, um, but I definitely coasted on that a lot in high school. And so my grades were strong, my scores were strong, but there were kids out there who were like seriously into Yale and Harvard and Brown, you know. And so I, I got into JMU, which is a great school. No, mm-hmm. no, no disrespect to JMU. Um, and uh, I ended up, ended up having literally the best four years of my life. Uh, so no, no complaints. That's awesome. And so what prompted the major in, in mass communications and what does like mass communications mean? <laughs> That's a good question because the question really should be, what did it mean in 1995 when I graduated and what does it mean today? Cause those are two very, very different questions. Um, mass communications. I, I honestly, I, I fell into that major because uh, I, f- I flunked out of being a music major. So I, I, so I, I, I decided I was, I'm going to go to JMU. I'm going to do, do what I want. I'm going to do a piano performance major, which is brutal. 
any, any kind of performance major, music performance major or, or art major is brutal. But, but you, you basically, the only thing you need to do is practice. That's it. Like you don't eat, you don't sleep, right? You just have to go play piano all day long, practice your scales, play the pieces. And I did, I did, I practiced two hours a day and I choked at my juries uh, at the end of my freshman year, which is was the, still to this day one of the most intimidating tests I've ever taken in my life. You sit in this thousand seat auditorium on stage playing a nine foot Steinway. It's a $150,000 piano. It's an amazing, like the best piano in the world, basically. Okay. Um, and uh, you have to play all these pieces from memory and scales across four octaves by memory. And there's four people in the audience and they're the four piano teachers in the department. <laughs> and they're judging literally every single thing that you do up there. So there's 996 empty seats. The four that are filled are filled with four people who, who are actively judging every single thing that you do. And I choked, uh, just choked. And, uh, two hours a day of practice was not enough. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, so I, I flunked out of my performance major and ended up in MassCom because at the time, MassCom was audio production, video production, journalism, that type of thing. I didn't, I didn't focus on journalism so much. I focused on the tech side of things, on audio production primarily. And, and so that's, that's what it meant in 1995. It was how do you communicate broadly in this, in this particular case with audio. And we were literally the last class that spliced physical tape. So I, I took, a, there was an audio production class that I took and we were the last class that spliced physical tape with a razor blade and tape and chalk markers like this. You know, there was digital audio editing at that point, but our professor was a ball buster and he's like, no, you gotta understand why this is so awesome. So do it the old <laughs> way. So, suffer through the crappiness of cutting tape, you know, cause there's no, there's no undo once, once you, Right. Cut a piece of tape, right? You can't, I mean, you can tape it back together, but uh, you can only do that so many times. Um, and so in 1995, MassCom meant journalism and, and video and audio production. What's funny is that, or it's funny in hindsight, is that I graduated with that degree in 1995. 1995 is the year that Netscape came out and fundamentally changed mass communications, right? All of a sudden we've got the visual browser. So you've got the internet, up until 1995, but it's all command line, gopher interfaces, green screen interfaces, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. 1995, uh, Netscape comes out and completely redefines mass communication. And I learned none of that in school. <laughs> right. So instantly my degree's worthless. Um, <laughs> that's, what, that's what it meant in 1995. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So I guess like, what, what did you think you wanted to do for a career while you were at at JMU. Yeah, audio production. I was going to I was going to be an audio engineer or producer because I wanted to be in the music industry. Uh performance wasn't going to cut it and uh at least as a performance major, I wasn't going to cut it. Maybe I'll be in bands. But bands don't make money and so I figured um being a producer or, or an audio engineer would do the trick and I was pretty good at it. In school, the school, uh, you know, I, I was doing pretty well. The school had a studio and I learned how to, how to you know, kind of be an audio engineer in school. And I got an internship in the summer of 1994 at a recording studio in New York City. And I worked the overnight shift from 11 p.m. to 8 a.m., which is when they did music. During the day, they did jingles and uh, other commercial stuff. But at night, they would do music. And so I worked the overnight shift and I spent a summer as an intern. An intern in a recording studio 
operates one level below the janitor. So in the hierarchy of the studio, that's where I was. But it was humbling. And I met a tremendous amount of celebrities and interesting people and crazy people um, over that summer. And I learned the most important thing I learned that summer was I did not want to be an audio engineer. Um, it was a, a brutal, a brutal job. Like you're working 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. At the time, this is 1994, they were making six bucks an hour. Wow. Living in New York City, right? So you're <laughs> grossing a thousand bucks a month, scraping by, and like basically you're living at the studio the whole time with very little credit for it as an assistant engineer, right? And then becoming a full-fledged engineer, that was a multi-year path. So for me, I, I recognized that that was not going to be uh, my career at that point, which I suppose was what internships are for, right? And so that's great. Right. Yeah. And so here's what surprised me the most in doing some research for this. Do I have it right that your first job after college was in the circus? <laughs> yes, that's correct. That's correct. Uh, look, I'm nothing if, uh, if not willing to kind of give anything a shot once, <laughs> you know, <laughs> see, kind of see what happens. So I hadn't given up. So, so I, come, I, come back from, I come back from my this is summer of my between junior and senior year. I do that internship. I come back and I'm sort of depressed about this audio production thing, but I'm going to finish it out. Like I got a year left. I got to finish it out at this one. I'm not going to change my major my senior year. And so I finish it out and it's final, it's, it's exam week, final semester, senior year. I have no plans. I'm playing, I'm playing with my band. Otherwise I'm going to school with no plans about what I'm going to do after school. And the director of the, the mass comp program calls me up. He says, listen, the circus is coming through town and they need an audio engineer. And we've recommended you for the job. <laughs> and I wasn't sure if, if I should be grateful or if I should be pissed, uh, you know, or offended. It wasn't clear to me, but nevertheless, they recommended me for this gig. And, I, and so I took a call with the band director in the Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers Circus. And he explained the gig to me and it paid real money in cash every week. And I didn't have any plans. And so, I called my folks and I said, what do you think? I was like, should I join the circus? And they said, yeah, go for it, which was shocking to me, absolutely shocking. And so I, um, I graduated on Saturday that week. I put my stuff in storage and my stuff literally consisted of my motorcycle, uh, my mattress and my Bob Marley poster. That's about it. <laughs> and, uh, and then Monday I was in the circus, just sort of like jumping in the deep end, figuring it out. And I spent six months on the road with the Clyde Beatty Cole Brothers Circus as the sound and lighting guy. Um, okay. We did two shows a day, every day, with no days off, three shows on Saturdays. And over the course of six months, I saw the circus 400 times in a row. <laughs> it's absolutely brutal. Absolutely brutal. One of the weirdest, craziest places I've ever been. Have you seen the circus since? <laughs> no. No, <laughs> I can't go. No, I can't. I, I, I don't need any more circus in my life ever. I've hung out with clowns. I've hung out with Tiger King kind of people. I've, I've hung out with trapeze artists, with ex-Soviet ex gymnasts who are now, you know, acrobats in the circus. You know, I've hung out with the Flying Rodriguez family. Like, I'm good. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> Forever, yeah. 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 And so... Like, what did your day-to-day -day look like? Was it like just a lot of preparing each, the sound and lighting for each show, making sure, making sure it's all 
running smoothly during the show. And then it was pretty mellow actually. Mm-hmm. So, so like there was a ton of downtime and I, and I didn't have a car. So the way that it worked was we would show up at a circus lot and a circus lot would be anything from a mall parking lot to a baseball field to just the middle of nowhere. It could be anything like that. And so we would show up in at night from the previous show. We would drive overnight and we go to sleep. And then you wake up the next day and I couldn't do anything until the guys put up the tent. It was a tented circus, three rings, the whole thing. Okay. And so, and that took a half day at least. And so I had nothing to do until the afternoon of the next day. And then once they got the tent set up, I would go and, and set up the audio. They, they, they put up the lights cause they got to hang them in the, in the circus tent. And I just, I just test the microphones, test the audio, make sure everything worked. And as long as everything worked, I was done until showtime. And then showtime was something like four to six and then like seven to nine or something like that. And it was an hour in between. So we'd work for four or five hours in the evening. And then if we're sticking around, if we got, if we're in the same place the next day, that's it. You're done. You have no obligation to the circus until four o'clock the next day. And, and so if we were near a city, we'd go into the city, we'd go have a real meal. We'd, maybe get a hotel room for a change, get a, sh- a hot shower. That would be nice. Um, some privacy <laughs> for right. a night, something along those lines, and then come back the next day. And then if we were leaving that night, then you have to tear down immediately as soon as everybody takes off, um, pack up the trucks. And then I didn't have a car. So I would, I, I would always catch a ride with one of the, one of the trucks and you just kind of sit there and um, wait until you get to the next place. That was yeah. Every two to three nights would be the next place. And what surprised you the most about working at the, in the circus? Oh God, there's so much. I'm trying to summarize it. Um, the summary I would say is that this is a subculture of roughly 200 people that lives, I assume to this day, on the fringe of what you and I would call normal society or like the world that we live in these folks don't live in that world. They live on the edge of that world. It's, it's super insular. And they sort of dip their toes into the, the regular world um, <laughs> when they need to. So like they go see a movie or they go to the mall or, or, or you know, they buy a new TV. But otherwise, it's a completely different subculture with its own hierarchies, norms, cultural norms, prejudices, judicial system, education system, uh, problems, uh, politics. Uh, It's absolutely fascinating. There's a book uh, called Under the Big Top by a guy named Bruce Feiler. Bruce Feiler worked in the same circus that I was in as a clown for a year, the year before I joined. And he's an author. He did this so he could write the book. And then he wrote a book called Under the Big Top. And if you're curious about that life, it's not a long book. And I know every single character in that book because they were still there when I got there. Hmm. Okay. And maybe similarly, like what are your biggest takeaways or lessons learned from, from that whole experience? So the biggest takeaway for me and the biggest growing sort of personal growth thing that I took away was that I could, I could find my way through anything. The circus while you know while not a life or death situation right and and while not a survival skill per se 
was a absolutely bizarre place. And I got thrown in the deep end and they were like, just swim. And I was like, but I don't know how to swim. And they're like, well, figure it out because the show starts in two hours, right? right. And, and what it taught me was how, how to kind of, how to figure, figure, figure stuff like that out, figure my way through kind of these difficult and, and spontaneous situations, um, how to build relationships that could make me more successful in these types of situations. And relationships with folks who I didn't relate to on any kind of level and who could potentially very, very quickly become an enemy rather than a colleague, a friend, or a supporter. And I, and I learned a lot of those skills that have really benefited me both personally and professionally over the years since then. So, so it is survival skills that I, I learned there, just not like Bear grills, you know, I'm going to eat a salmon out of the river survival skills. Like, it's more like, like how, to, how, to, how to survive sort of any sort of social and professional situation and succeed. Yeah. Interesting. So why did you leave? Or why did you leave? Uh, I left. So I got on in Virginia at JMU and I did six months up to New Hampshire and okay. then back, back down. And as the circus, uh, circus was on its way back to Florida. All circuses come from Florida, by the way. Um, and okay. they, so they start in February and they do a nine month cycle. Um, they start in February and they come back to Florida at Thanksgiving. They follow the warm weather up and down the East Coast. Mm -hmm. um, when they passed through Virginia, I called the band up and I was like, hey, it's been six months. Should I, should I come back? Are we doing like, are we gonna try to do this for real and be rock stars? And they said, yeah. And so I, I got off when we got through Virginia and uh, that was it, try to be, try to reignite the rock star career for a couple of years. Okay. And then once, I guess that didn't, didn't pan out, is that when you transitioned into a more, I guess, traditional corporate job? Correct. Correct. So that was late, late nineties, 99 is when I got the first gig as a web designer. Okay. And where was that? What company? The company was called IXL, which IXL at the time was one of the biggest web 1.0 consulting companies. It had grown through acquisition to over 2,500 employees worldwide. It was quintessential web 1.0 opulence and stupidity. I mean, it, it was um, 2,600 employees, massive growth, ridiculous job offers, climbing walls in the conference room, thousand gallon fish tanks. Like this is no exaggeration on any <laughs> of this stuff. And the CEO of the company is 26 years old. No offense to anybody who's 26 years old, but running a nearly 3,000 person company in an industry that no, one, no, no one's ever seen before, um, well, it was a disaster in the end. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's crazy. And uh, yeah, but, but and, and look, nobody knew what we, I didn't, we didn't know what we were doing. Nobody knew what they were doing. And so we learned, uh, for better or for worse, on the client's dime. So the client would come in and say, we need a website. Okay, we'll build you a website. And it was like, how do we build a website? Like, let's, figure, <laughs> let's figure it out, right? And then, and then we got better at it time and time again. So that's, that's, that was the first gig. And that was in Richmond, Virginia. So I was in the Richmond, Virginia office of IXL. Okay. And that was late 90s? Yeah, 90, 99 is when I started. Okay. So that was right during the dot-com bubble. Exactly, right? Like, yeah, things, things were skyrocketing up. And then two years later, everything just, just went away. Yeah. Yeah. And how did that, how did that affect your career path? when the bubble eventually burst? I did the four or five toughest life things that you can do during that time. So I got laid off 
from my job at IXL in 2001. I got married in 2001. I uh, entered grad school in 2001. Uh, we moved to Boston to go to grad school. And two months later found out we were, uh, we were pregnant with our first daughter. So I did literally all the things that are supposed to like break you and break your relationships and do all that. And so I, you know, for me, it was, it was a mad scramble because all those things were happening at once. It was a mad scramble to then stay employed while I was in grad school and starting a new life and preparing for baby number one. And so, you know, every three, four, five, six months, a gig would end. Even though it was a full-time gig, the gig would end. The, 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 the bubble collapse would eat up that thing. And so I bounced around for a couple of years mm -hmm. um, while we were in Boston. Um, but, you know, I landed on my feet. I, man I managed to stay employed, uh, kind of going from smaller company to bigger company to bigger company, that type of thing. Okay. And where did you go to grad school in Boston? Is that a curiosity? I went to Bentley University. They, they have a um, human factors in information design course. And they were one of the first in the country to have that. And I, um, I, I attended that program. That's awesome. That's where I went to school for undergrad. So. Oh, you did? <laughs> yes, can we share that? Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Excellent. Well, the cool thing is that they, uh, now they use my book, Lean UX, in mm -hmm. the program. Which oh, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. So when, like, when does your passion for like product development and user experience like really kick in? Like, was it when you were bouncing around during all these jobs? Was it later on? So I start my career doing web design and basic graphic design on static websites. So it was exciting because it was new. Today you'd look at it and be like, "That's brochureware. It's literally a PDF, like, like that you marked up in HTML." Um, very shortly after I start my job, a, a book starts making its way around the office. And the book is called Information Architecture for the World Wide Web. And it's written by two guys, a guy named uh, Lou Rosenfeld and another guy named Peter Morville. And this was sort of the cutting edge of website design thinking in 1999 and 2000. That book is now in its fourth edition. So it's still relevant today. And essentially information architecture is, well, how do you organize the information in a way that's findable, usable, intuitive, that type of thing. And so I read, I read this book over, over a weekend and I came back to my boss and I said, look, I want to do this. I want to be an information architect because this suits my sensibilities. It moves me further upstream in the decision-making process. So at this point I was like the last person, like everything had been decided and they're like, go ahead and build and build it and make it look like this. And then for me, I was like, well, I don't like that. I, I don't like to take all those orders. Let me kind of move up the stream a little, little bit. And this helped me do that. And so I start down this path. We figure out what information architecture is, like I said, sort of on the client's dime. And that eventually, as the sophistication of the web evolves and increases, information architecture evolves into interaction design and user experience design and then product management right. and so forth. Um, it's still a very critical part of the design process, but there's just a lot more to it now. Okay. Like, what is it about like user experience and, you know, information architecture and design that you, that you just really enjoy? Like, why are you so passionate about it? Do you think? Well, I, I know that I enjoy it because it is uh, helping people be more successful. And by people, I mean the users of these systems. Now, of course that helps the companies be more successful as well, which is great. Right. 
But my goal is to help people be more successful in doing whatever it is they need to do. And there are things that we do online that are fun. And there are things that we do online that are not fun. And it doesn't mean that the things that we do online that are not fun should suck or should be difficult to use. Um, in fact, those are the things that should be the easiest to use and the most intelligent types of experiences that we put together. And so if I can help do that, if I can help organizations understand why that's important, we make their customers more successful. Ultimately, we make them more successful too. Right. Were there any moments or projects in particular at any of the jobs that you've held throughout your career that like really made a significant impact in terms of how you think about user experience and, and product development? I mean, in many ways, it, it was all cumulative. I'm trying to think of really, I think I worked at America Online for about three years in Northern Virginia. And this was, while this was, this was, they had already peaked at this point as a service, they were still a fairly powerful um, influencer of the web and technology back then. And that was humbling. That was humbling when you're designing for 25 million people. And that was, look, that was the scale. That was a lot of people back then. Mm -hmm. Facebook today obviously is a dwarfs that with 2 billion users. But back then you're designing for 25, 30 million people, 50 million people. That is a massive amount of people back then. And it's humbling, right? Because how do you design for 50 million people? How do you design for 25 million people? It really forces you to get out there and understand the customer, the user. And for me, that's really taught me to respect that part of the process. It's not that I didn't respect it before, but I never took it as seriously until after I worked at America Online because you had to, because there were so many different people that you could design for. Is there a lowest common denominator? And if there isn't, who do we prioritize? Right. And so how many years do you work in the corporate world before you jump to do your own venture? So I worked, um, the last full-time job that I had working for somebody else was 2012 is when I left it. So roughly 13 years into my career. Uh, in 2012, we started an agency, myself, Josh Seiden, and uh, Gift Constable started a small product design and development studio called uh, Proof. Sorry, I forgot the name. Proof was the name of the business. Uh, we very quickly sold that and became part of a bigger agency called Neo. Um, and so I spent five, uh, four years helping to build and grow Neo into an agency. And I've struck out on my own officially as a solo practitioner in November of 2015. So overall, it was 16 years into my career to get there. Okay, got it. And so like what made that point in your career like the right time to leave? I had built my business. I had built, so within Neo, I had built a content training and education business. That was part of our offering. The reality though, is that people were coming to work with me more so than they were coming to work with Neo. And so when Neo ended, I talked to the, well, Neo ended in, in a sale and an acquisition. And I talked to the buyer and I offered them this business. And I said, look, I have this business. It's, you know, it's not an insignificant revenue stream and with the right resources, we could scale it. And they said like, nah, we don't want that. And so I said, okay, well, I, I know this business. I've built it myself. I know how much it makes. I know how to run it. I know how to sell it. I'm going to take it out and do it on my own. 
And, and that was, it was a massive risk for me. It was a massive step from, I've got two kids at this point. I've got a house, got a couple of cars, right? Um, I study paycheck every two weeks. So it was, it was a big risk, but uh, I'm thrilled that I did it. And it's, it's lived up to the expectation and the workload <laughs> that I anticipated. <laughs> right, right. And so how does all of your work and experience um, both in the corporate world as well as your own your own venture lead you to writing your new book, uh, Forever Employable? So I've built this career and I've developed a following and I've developed a, an audience that is curious about not only what I write or what I have to share, but how I built this business. And over the last few years, and almost on a weekly basis, I've been getting an inbound inquiry that says, hey, Jeff, how did you get a book deal? How did you build this content, content business? How did you get that coaching gig? How do you speak at conferences? How do you get an invitation for that? Um, and to me, that's signal. That's signal from the market that there's interest in this content. And I've been thinking about doing it for a long time. And then finally, I said, you know what? I'm going to write this. And at first, it was going to be a blog post. And then I realized there was a lot more to it than just a, a blog post or a Medium article. And so I decided to write a book about it and really share very candidly how I built this business, how others have done it, what are the, the, the hard parts, the easy parts, the components, and how to treat it as a product or a service. So I'm using product thinking, I'm using design thinking to ensure that this thing is viable, that it continues to be successful, and that it evolves with the times and with the market. And all of that is shared in the book very candidly, and, and things that worked and things that didn't work and so forth. And so it was, it was a response to all of that feedback that I was sensing over the last few years. Got it. And what does it mean to be forever employable? Ideally, it means that you're in a situation where you no longer have to chase work, but work chases you. Now, it's pithy and it's clever and it's, it's nice to say, and it works as a good subtitle for the book. <laughs> um, and, but what it means is, is that literally, like, you are no longer pushing yourself out into the marketplace in search of new opportunities. Instead, you are pulling those opportunities towards you. You're, you're, you're extracting them because you're, the platform that you've created for yourself, the, the personal brand, the thought leadership, the recognized expertise is continuously attracting new opportunities, collaborations, uh, promotional gigs your way. Ideally, that's the situation you want to find yourself in. Okay. And so if there's one thing that you would want everyone to take with them after reading your book, what would it be? You have a unique story and you have the experience and the expertise to be able to tell a compelling story that others will want to hear. I know it sometimes doesn't feel that way. I know it feels like everything's already been said and everyone's screaming about it anyway. <laughs> and you don't feel like your experience is different in any way. It is. It's unique. Only you have taken these steps to get where you are today. And so share that story. And if you haven't taken any steps yet, if you're just at the beginning of your career, tell that story. I recently had a conversation with a, a bunch of folks who were 18, 19, 20 years old coming out of a, um, a tech training program. And they asked me this question. They said, look, this is great, Jeff. We don't have any experience. What are we going to talk about? I say, talk about your experience in the tech training program and share the story of looking for your first tech gig. 
there are lots of people out there who would love to read that and learn from you and understand what's working, what's not, the pitfalls, the wins, the fails, whatever it is. And so you've got a story to tell and you should tell it. Awesome. And so getting into these last uh, handful of questions here, the first sentence of your LinkedIn summary reads, I believe humility and learning are in short supply. Can you maybe expand on that and what's shaped that belief? My, my work or my clients have shaped that belief. Um, <laughs> look, we live, we live in fascinating times. We live in, in the information age, in the age of technology, in the age of the internet. Unfortunately, that's not been the, it's only been around for a few decades. You could argue it's been around for four decades, realistically at a global, at a global scale. It's really only been impactful for the last two decades or so. Um, that means that you have organizations and leaders within those organizations who operate in, with an antiquated mindset. And that mindset is one uh, that comes from a hundred years of manufacturing business knowledge, right? So there's a there's hundred years of the industrial age and that's tr a tremendous amount of forward momentum and inertia. And it's what business schools have taught forever. And it's how leaders have been trained. You need to manage your people like a factory towards efficiency and productivity. And productivity means churning out more stuff at lower costs, right? It also means that you're reserving all the creativity, all the innovation, all the decision-making and all the ex exploration to the leadership team. And then you decide what's good or bad, and then you tell your teams to execute, and that's what they have to do. That works in a uh, high certainty, low risk environment like manufacturing, right? So if you're manufacturing a pen, a Sharpie, whatever it is, right? You know exactly what that thing's gonna look like when, when it's done. You know exactly how much uh, material needs to go into that. You know the cost of that material and your job is to increase the efficiency of the production of that thing so you can make more of those faster at lower cost and drive up your profit margins. Digital systems, which power business in the economy today are not physical widgets. They are continuous systems that need to be optimized continuously and they need to be learned from continuously because the behavior of the users of those systems changes rapidly. The way that we use technology changes on a weekly and a monthly basis. The way that we use Sharpies, generally speaking, is highly predictable and does not change, right? And unfortunately, leadership of organizations don't operate with this learning mindset, this idea that things change and that I need to continuously shift how I'm doing business and how I'm providing value in order to succeed. And what that comes from is a lack of humility, right? Humility, to be very, very clear about what humility is, humility is not the abdication of leadership and it is not the abdication of vision. We still need that. We need you as a leader to give us direction, to give us vision, to tell us where to go and kind of guide us on a path. Humility is simply being willing to admit that you were wrong in the face of evidence from the market. So if you're saying, listen, we, we wanna go this way. I say, okay, we're going this way. And then we start to collect evidence that says, hey, you know what, this way doesn't feel like the right way. We should probably turn left a little bit, right? That 
for, for, for a leader to admit that and say, you know what, you're right, that's good evidence, I'm going to adjust my thinking here, that's humility. And that simply does not happen because that's not how these leaders have been trained. They've been trained to be the boss who has the answer and it's never wrong. And that's why I am uh, forever employable because there's an endless supply of these <laughs> folks and these organizations who need help moving towards humility and continuous learning. Oh, that's, that's super interesting. And so as is the name of the podcast, the driving force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? I think, you know, and it took me a while, it took me a while to get here because I, I started my career, I started working professionally a little late. So I started, you know, when I was 26, 27 is really when I started working professionally. So it took me, and it took me a while to really kind of find my footing as we talked about. What I think I've realized now is my driving force is to make people more successful. And I think at a high level, that's what I do. So when I was a designer, I helped customers be more successful. As a product manager, I'm helping organizations be more successful. Today with the Forever Employable content, I'm also helping people be more successful in their life, in their career and achieving their goals. And to me, that's hugely satisfying. Awesome. And then lastly here, before we wrap up, what parting words of wisdom or advice around career development would you like to leave the people listening? I think the most important thing that you can do is learn how to write. So that's, that to me, it, it's, I wish somebody would have, uh, I wish my parents, my parents were like, do math, do science, be a doctor. And I was like, okay, I don't want to be a doctor. I'm squeamish and faint at the sight of blood. <laughs> like, yeah, be a doctor anyway. I was like, I can't do it, literally. <laughs> squeamish. Uh, but I wish my parents would have beat into me that I should learn how to write. And so if I've got any advice for, for anybody, words of wisdom, it's, it's take a writing course and it's, and it's a muscle. You can say, I don't know how to do it. I don't want to, whatever. It's, it's like lifting weights. Like when you go to lift weights for the first time, you're like, I can't lift anything. Right. But then you, over time you get better at it. Same thing because learning how to write teaches you how to communicate effectively, not just in writing, but in speaking, in presenting, in graphics and whatever it is. Um, and so, uh, and that makes you incredibly valuable in any situation. And so to me, learning how to write is the key. Awesome. That's a great place to end. Jeff, thanks again for coming on the show. This is great. Uh, my pleasure, Chase. Thanks so much for having me. Where can people go to find you online and learn more about your work? I'm super easy to find. It's by design. Uh, JeffGotHealth.com will get you kind of everything you need to know there. Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, ChaseRizzo.com and follow me on Instagram at ChaseRizzo4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.